Welcome to The Cost of Culture. This is a podcast for anyone curious about the hidden world behind the glamour of book collecting. It's also a podcast for everyone wanting to know a little more about history and the Middle Ages. Throughout the podcast, we'll be focusing on a period known as the Golden Age of Book Collecting in the late 19th and early 20th century, where some of the most expensive and important medieval manuscripts were bought by some of history's most famous, yet secretive, collectors. I'm Elizabeth Durnley, and I'm part of the Cultivate Manuscripts Project, based at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. This project investigates how the trade in medieval manuscripts between 1900 and 1945 has affected ideas about the nature and value of European culture. The Cost of Culture has been created by the Cultivate team, and as we move through each episode, researchers from the team will explore different aspects of book collecting. We'll look at the lives of some of the most prominent and sometimes notorious collectors and dealers, from millionaire financiers like J.P. Morgan to Victorian London bookseller Mary Lee Tregaskis. We'll investigate forgeries, thefts and other scandals in the book-collecting world. And we'll also look at the politics of buying and selling culture. Who should own medieval manuscripts? And how have the activities of a small group of people in the early 20th century affected the way we think about the Middle Ages today? So with us today, we have Dr. Laura Cleaver, who is Senior Lecturer in Manuscript Studies at the Institute of English Studies at the University of London. And Laura is also the Project Leader of Cultivate Manuscripts. And she'll be speaking with us today about some of the ideas behind the project and why it matters. So welcome, Laura. Thank you for joining us. So let's dive straight in. Where did your interest in medieval manuscripts come from? Can you tell us a bit about that? So I trained as an art historian um, and that was really my introduction to manuscripts, which was very unexpected. I, I went to do an undergraduate degree in art history thinking that I wanted to study the Italian Renaissance, I think, um, and ended up with a love of illuminated books. But that means that my approach to books is one really of liking beautiful and often quite shiny things. But I, as I have gone on with studying books, I also really love them just because they are incredibly sophisticated objects. The combination of imagery and text and the way in which those come together to tell stories is very rich and fascinating, I think. And it tells us a lot about the people who made these books and used them in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I think that idea of them being attracted because they are these such beautiful objects is, is probably something that's common to a lot of people who study medieval manuscripts. Uh, certainly how I came in myself, I've just been so fascinated by, by the illuminations and, and these books are just wonderful objects. So, so just to get back to basics, really, what actually counts as a medieval manuscript, for instance, in terms of date boundaries and that sort of thing? Could you just define what we're talking about here? Mm. So for the purposes of the project, we are defining medieval manuscripts or really pre-modern manuscripts as books. 
So we're not really looking at fragments or books that have been broken up. And they're books made by hand. That's what the term manuscript means, handwritten from the Latin. And books in the format that we now know them really started to be made in large numbers around the 4th or 5th century AD. And although we don't have many survivals from that point, and they've continued to be made right up until today. But we take as a cutoff point something around the, the year 1600. There's a major shift in the middle of the 15th century with the development of the printing press, which allows an alternative for book production to making them by hand. But we have extended the time period that we're interested in a little bit beyond that. There is no hard cutoff date. It's not as if everybody woke up one morning in 1450 and thought, right, that's it. The Middle Ages are over now. We're into the Renaissance. So we're looking at something that, that has a long afterlife. But broadly speaking, we're looking at things made between about 400 and 1600, which is a huge time period. So coming to cultivate manuscripts, obviously you have this interest in books as, as objects and we have a, a large time span of manuscripts where they're being produced. But could you tell us a little bit about the background to cultivate manuscripts in particular? So where did the idea come from and how did you put the project together? The idea began when I was working in Dublin and I was teaching medieval manuscripts as part of art history and taking students to see them because these are objects that are very difficult to really appreciate when you're looking at them just through reproductions. So I was taking students to the various collections of medieval manuscripts in Dublin of which there are a few really good ones and amongst them is a thing called the Chester Beatty Library named after the person who put the collection together, Alfred Chester Beatty. And I was in the library one day getting to know the collection with the curator of Western material, Jill Uncle, and we were looking at a catalogue that Beatty had made in the 1920s and turning the pages. It's a very big catalogue, it has a lot of photographs in it. And as we were working through the photographs, I started to realise that I recognised many of the books as things that weren't in the collection anymore. And so we began talking about why that was, why only part of the original collection is now in Dublin, and how we might go about working out where the other books now were. I then got some funding from the Irish Research Council to do a small project where we went out and tried to reconstruct the collection to work out what Beattie had owned when the collection was at its largest point. And that process then started me thinking about why books are where they are, which is something I hadn't really considered before. You know, I just turned up to a library and, and used what was there. But starting to think of all of these collections as things that have been constructed and come about through a combination of chance, but also through the workings of the book trade and the interests and desires of particular collectors at particular times. Beattie had his original library in London and then moved it to Dublin later on, so he had his library in more than one place and not all the books made it to Dublin. So that started me thinking about how and where we encounter these objects and what the consequences of that are 
you know, we can go and see books that are in museums or public libraries. It's harder to get access to things that are still in private collections. So that skews the amount of material that's available to scholarship. And that started me thinking along the lines then that the, the Cultivate project is now working on. Right. Yes, because I suppose when we visit libraries, often we do just look at the catalogue and think, well, that's just what they have. Right. But it's sort of looking back and then thinking, well, you know, how did they actually get there in the first place? At what point did these these come together in this this collection that we're seeing today? So what's the actual history of people collecting medieval manuscripts? You mentioned uh, Chester Beatty as one, but how far back does this go? Presumably when printed books came in, manuscripts, like what, what was the status of them then? Were they thought of as outdated technology or were they kept as sort of curiosities? Like what was the history of people actually valuing medieval manuscripts as books post Middle Ages? I think the important thing to bear in mind when we're trying to unravel this is that if people hadn't valued these manuscripts over a long period of time, we wouldn't have them now. We don't recover manuscripts from archaeology with a very small number of exceptions. The Fadden Moor Psalter, which was found in a bog, is, is one of those. We have them because they've been kept, sometimes by accident, they got locked up in a wall or something, but almost always in libraries. And they've passed from hand to hand. The more difficult question then is to try and reconstruct what has been valued from what survives. We don't know exactly how many manuscripts were written in the course of this very long history of the Middle Ages. We assume that manuscripts with decoration and pictures have survived better the manuscripts that were just text, they're more accessible. You don't have to be able to read the difficult handwriting or whatever language the book is in. You can just enjoy the pictures. But we don't know exactly what the relative proportions are of survival. Chance has obviously played a part. There are terrible instances of of libraries that caught fire and then some books were saved, which probably tells us something about the priorities of the people who went in to retrieve books from a fire, but was also to do with where the fire was and what was salvageable. So it's difficult then to to really understand um, how these books have been valued. And that's what we're trying to unravel. As collector's items, I think manuscripts have had a very long history of being treated as things of historical value. Even within the Middle Ages, we find monasteries, for example, or churches keeping very old books as relics, if they've been associated with a particular saint, or keeping them even though they've got more up-to-date copies of the same book. So on some level, they're being kept as things of historical work. And then at different times and in different historical circumstances, these books have been valued for different things. So at the English Reformation, books are kept or retrieved from the monasteries as they're being broken up, sometimes because they're highly decorated and beautiful objects, but in other cases, because they were held to be important historical records about English or British history. 
So different values have been applied to them in different contexts and at different times, which means, as I said earlier, that the, the picture that we're trying to understand of, of how these things have been valued over time is very complicated. So the period that you're actually looking at in Cultivate Manuscripts is focusing on collectors working in the early 20th century, so the years between 1900 and 1945. So as you say, collecting manuscripts as objects has a history. Why did you choose to focus on this particular time period? Was it a particularly important time for manuscript collecting? The early 20th century is sometimes called the golden age of collecting, really beginning in the late 19th century and running through into the 1920s and a little bit beyond. And it's interesting to me for several interrelated reasons. It's a period when a very large number of books move from private ownership into collections where they will then become part of museums that are founded from those collections. So collections like the Morgan Library in New York formed in this period and then becomes a museum. Or they move into collections like the British Museum Collection or the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Collections where they are going to stay for a long period of time, potentially indefinitely, although who knows um, what's going to happen in the future. So it's a period that's really shaped quite profoundly where we find the books that we use today. At the same time, it's an interesting period in terms of people thinking about the modern European nation states and what it means to be British or French or German and finding part of the answer to that question in an identity rooted in the formation of those countries in the Middle Ages. So one of the ideas behind this project is that there's a link between the books as objects from that period that form a kind of evidence for the history of that time and their use in the 20th century as part of these new collections as countries and individuals within countries start to try and shape their own ideas about nationhood. So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at in some detail. Huh. And, and could you tell us, and we're going to go in future episodes into more detail about precisely who's doing this collecting, because there's some wonderful individuals who were collecting manuscripts during this period, but could you give us a bit of an overview of the, the types of people that were collecting during the early 20th century? In broad terms, we see a shift in this period from books being in the hands of aristocratic families, particularly in Britain, where in many cases they've been for hundreds of years and they've been built up in part of the family library and passed from generation to generation into the hands of people who've made fortunes through industry. And that's to do with a whole set of factors about agricultural difficulties, rising taxation, opportunities for new people to make money, and then their exploration of what it means to be rich and and what that status means, which seems for some of them to involve forming a library. But that's only talking about the very top of the market. Yes, we have some 
millionaires, whether they've made their fortunes from mining, as Chester Eaty did, or railroads or other kinds of industry, that's a very small number of people. And what we want to do in thinking about the whole of the trade is to look beyond those and, and see who else was buying manuscripts, because the love of old and beautiful, or sometimes not very beautiful books, is not restricted to rich people. And so we find actually a surprisingly diverse set of collectors. Among the people that I've been looking at are William Morris, who is, you see, a very famous name, famous as a designer and as a socialist who struggled with the idea of actually having a private collection of books, um, but did so anyway because he was so interested in them, and who formed his collection in tandem with developing his own press and making his own books. And then much, much less well-known people like Henry White, who was a wine merchant and built up a huge collection of books. One of my favourites, Charles Dyson Perrins, who inherited the condiments business that includes uh, Liam Perrins' Worcestershire sauce and who built up a library in this time period, spending huge sums on books. But then also clergymen quite often would have much smaller collections and scholars, people who were interested in the books for all sorts of reasons. So it is a very diverse body of people. And that reflects the fact that, that although some books were selling for thousands of pounds, you could still in this period buy a medieval manuscript for a few shillings or certainly less than a pound. So I guess that leads on to an, another question that I have. What sort of manuscripts are actually featuring in the project? It feels like there's a, a real range of, of types of book. Obviously, the ones that most people imagine when they think of as a medieval manuscript are these incredibly ornate, gilded presentation manuscripts, books of hours, that kind of thing. But also there are, there are other types as well. So could you say a little bit about the, the range of types of things that people are wanting to collect? That's a question that goes really to the heart of the project and the idea that the activities of these collectors, what the people who had the most money wanted, has really shaped the library collections that we've got now. And it's certainly true that, yes, the, the very highly illuminated, decorated books were incredibly popular in this period. And we have people forming collections of books primarily as art objects. So... JP Morgan in New York is really interested in, in decorated manuscripts, as is somebody called Henry Yates Thompson, who's building a collection in Britain of illuminated manuscripts. As we work down the market, however, there are people who are interested in particular types of book, who build collections of liturgical books, books that were used in church services, or books in a particular language or particular texts even and then at the bottom of the market there are a huge number of books that would have been cheaper even in the middle ages um, undecorated working books scientific texts which are often small and densely written books that would have been used by students in the formation of the universities and we start to see some specialist markets emerging for some of that material. In the aftermath of the First World War, a dealer called Wilfred Voynich goes to America and 
he targets the growing American universities and people who he thinks will ultimately give their collections to those universities. And he makes scientific manuscripts, some of which are beautiful and highly decorated, but many of which aren't. One of his specialities. His other speciality is, is finding books of which very few copies survive. So that idea that, that people want things that are really rare and unusual, which is another driver of the market. And why would you say that it's important to actually look at who's doing the collecting? Why should we care about who's putting these books in, in collections? The role of the collector is really important and I think often underappreciated. The activities of the collector have had a real impact on where books are now, how easy they are to access, and goes hand in hand with the status of the book. So books that were bought by William Morris, to go back to that example, were known to have been owned by William Morris, partly because he stuck a label in the front saying that they'd been part of his library. But when they then turned up at auction, throughout the early 20th century, sale catalogues typically told you that they were part of the library of William Morris. And this was part of their appeal and part of their value. And that helped to raise the price of many, not all, but many of those books, helped to ensure that they went into other famous collections and ultimately into high status museums and became very well publicised. At the same time, Elite collectors were often also paying for people to write about their books and publicise them. So Beattie, who we've already talked about, paid Eric Miller, who was working at the British Museum, to write a catalogue of his manuscripts. Miller never finished it but um, because Beattie decided to, to sell the manuscripts. But it means we have records of that collection. And those sorts of books provided a springboard for the next generation of scholarship. So not only were those books high profile and relatively easy to access in terms of museum access, but they were also starting to be more and more documented, which has tended to mean that they continue to be better studied right up until today. And I think it's worth reflecting on all of this, reflecting on the impact that this has had and how this has distorted what we think medieval manuscripts are, both because they are the major source for writing about the Middle Ages and understanding its history. The text that's in them, as well as the objects themselves, are the things that historians use to try and work out what was going on in the past. But also, we're at an interesting moment for access to manuscripts because we are living in an era in which many of them are being digitized and put online. And I think it's important as we do that to remember the circumstances in which that is being done. The richer museums, the ones that are better funded, have by and large led the way in making their collections available. So even though we seem to be seeing more and more material, and we are seeing more and more material, we're still only seeing sections of all the books that were ever made. And those sections tend to be from the wealthier museums, which have traditionally invested in both books and scholarship on those books. And that 
may have consequences that we don't fully understand yet in terms of how we think about books and by extension the middle ages and does that filter in as well to teaching of medieval studies uh, say if students are coming to universities and they they study medieval manuscripts or medieval books is it in part shaped by the fact that certain certain collections certain types of manuscripts are just better known and so get made into editions etc and so people end up studying those would you say have an impact there I think you've got a very good point there and this comes partly through the huge shifts in technology that I've seen in the time since I started being a student. When I started, if you wanted to know about medieval manuscripts, you went to the bookcase that had the books on medieval manuscripts and you took them off the shelf and you worked through them. So you had access to the things that had been written about and published and ideally published with illustrations and photographs. Now your first port of call would probably be the internet, which gives you access to much more material, but is still delivered to you in a way that is structured by particular conventions and people who've made decisions about how those manuscripts are going to be organised and made accessible. Very few collections have been able at this point in time to digitise their whole collection. So curators and the people who've funded the digitisation have had a big part to play in determining what is now accessible and what is not. And inevitably, if you come to that as a student who is starting from nothing, you don't know what's not being shown to you and what's not available or necessarily the the decisions that have been made in filtering that information to you. Talking about the people who've collected manuscripts and shaped what we have today in libraries and archives, how do you say that this compares to to museum collections? Because I think, again, perhaps similar decisions have been made that we were not always fully aware of when we go to a museum about what's on display, where it's on display. Would you say it's comparable to that? Absolutely. We... Are looking at a world in which museums have far more objects in their collections than they can put on display at any one time. And it's very interesting to be doing this research in a time period in which where those objects have come from has been receiving increasing attention. A lot of museum objects, particularly in European and American collections, were obtained as a product of the British Empire and indeed other European empires in the late 19th and indeed early 20th century in circumstances that need to be revisited and revised. And we are living through people having debates about very sensitive material and where it should be and whether it needs to be sent back to the place that that it was obtained from. And that pertains to, to some manuscripts as well. We know that in the Second World War, manuscripts were seized by the Nazis, particularly uh, the Rothschild collections in Paris, and were then taken to Germany. Some of them were returned, not all of them have been traced, and there are still ongoing debates when these things come to light and are identified about where they should go, and some books are still being returned today. So there are lots of parallels between libraries, studying libraries and studying museums more broadly. Libraries are in some ways particularly challenged by the nature of their 
objects, it's very hard to display books in a traditional setting. You can only have them open at one place, so you can only see um, two pages. So there are some, some differences about how museums and libraries do things, but in terms of thinking about where the collections came from and how they came together, I think there are some important similarities as well. Okay, so really all of what you've been talking about suggests that the way in which people have collected medieval manuscripts have really helped to form our ideas of what you know what medieval culture is, maybe what culture is more more widely as well. So why why should people today want to be thinking about collectors of medieval manuscripts? Having been quite maybe critical of the the digital revolution, I think there is a huge upside to this, which is obvious. These material is being made more accessible than it has ever been before. And the beauty of illuminated and decorated manuscripts, as we've touched on, is that they can be enjoyed with very minimal specialist expertise. If you want to read these books, you may need to learn Latin or Old French or Old English and to read the handwriting, but you can appreciate them as aesthetic objects with with no specialist training whatsoever. And I think therefore that what we're doing is opening up a huge untapped resource that people can respond to as they start to tell news stories, either through art or any other medium, and they think about their own place in the world today. One of the things that I think helped get me interested in the Middle Ages was just growing up in a country in Britain where there's a huge amount of medieval material still around. Nobody in Europe is very far from a medieval building, usually a church, but not always. And so we are constantly, very often unconsciously, asking ourselves, what do these things mean in our current context? Should we bother to preserve them? Are we going to let them fall down? And books are an extension of that. They've they've made it this far um, because people have cared about them. But new technology gives us an opportunity to look at them again and think, what do they mean to us? Why have we got these things and what can we do with them? And my hope is that that our responses to that are going to be ever more creative and interesting as well from a scholarly point of view of helping us to gain an ever better understanding of our past, how we got here um, and what our ancestors thought and believed, which can help us understand the world around us. Fantastic. So for anybody who's listening and haven't actually seen that many medieval manuscripts, where would you suggest that they, they start? So as we're recording right now, we're still in the pandemic, hopefully emerging from it. But as Laura says, a lot of collections are online. So if people wanted to start exploring medieval manuscripts, could you recommend any collections, any libraries where they could start looking? Yes, there are lots, depending on what people are interested in. So the British Library has an excellent website with resources for very different audiences that will give you lots of images and short pieces of texts about different kinds of books and they have an excellent blog as well. If you're interested in particular collectors or collections, um, the Chester Beatty Library has again a website with some images, not that many images of their manuscripts, but some images of their manuscripts as does the Morgan Library in New York. So those are some of the examples that we've talked about today. There are some 
really excellent, if you want to go a little bit further, some really excellent online training resources as well. The Himmel Museum, which is just HMML, has an excellent website that will introduce you to the study of medieval books. And we'll place all these in the show notes as well. So if you want to follow any of these links, you can go and have a look for them on our website, uh, which we'll have uh, in the show notes to the episode. So we're coming to the end of a conversation and we have a final question for Laura. And this is something that we're going to be asking all the guests on each episode. If you could own just one medieval manuscript, Laura, what would it be and why? I find this a surprisingly difficult question. I am somebody who is fascinated by books. I love handling books. I enjoy books of of all kinds. I don't know that I would want to own the sorts of medieval manuscripts that I like. As I say, I started out as an art historian and I'm still primarily drawn to things that are heavily decorated and shiny, which these days would be worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, which would then worry me about looking after it appropriately and insuring it and all the things that come with the responsibilities of owning it. So I'm not sure that I, I necessarily do want to own those books. But that, again, takes us back to, I'll be really interested to see what other people say, because that takes us back to what drives people to collect? Why do people want to own things as opposed to being able to enjoy them in libraries or in other collections? William Morris said that he needed his own collection because there wasn't a collection of medieval manuscripts in every local library that he could enjoy, so he had to build his own, um, which was his argument anyway. That's not a very Uh, good answer to your question. No, no, it's a great answer to the question. And I think, as you say, it'll be just so interesting to see what other people, you know, what other people say is one that they'd want to own. And indeed, if they want to own one, I mean, it feels like it would be a lot of responsibility as well to have one of these objects, because you say if it's something going into the millions of pounds. So I'll be really fascinated as we go on to see what people say. Well, that brings us to the end of today. So Laura, thank you so much for talking to us about the Cultivate project. So in coming episodes, we'll be digging into other aspects of the project and talking to other people working on medieval manuscripts. So thank you as well to everybody who's been listening. I hope you'll come back and join us for the next episode. And if you want to know more about the show, our guests, and of course, the Cultivate Manuscript project, please have a look at our website, which will be linked in the show notes. And you can also follow us on Twitter at cultivate underscore MSS. Thank you very much and goodbye.